Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your work. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your word. And as we open up your word this morning, we pray that you would speak to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I hope you've got a a study guide. Following along with the study guide, some of our groups study this during the, uh, the week. We are actually kind of technically up to the, the last week of our sermon series of, of David after God's own heart, although next week Pastor Steve is going to be uh, bringing the word and he's going to be preaching from um, Psalm 51. Now some of you may know Psalm 51 and know that David wrote many of the Psalms. And can I encourage you, and it's actually written in the front page of your bulletin here, for a little bit of, can I use the word homework, a bit of homework? Would you like to read 2 Samuel chapter 7 through to chapter 12, which will give a sort of a bit of perspective to what Steve is going to be preaching on next uh, Sunday. So 2 Samuel 7 through to 12. Now, with that in mind, we're actually going to be looking at the chapter before that, 2 Samuel chapter 6. So today, 2 Samuel chapter 6, on your own time, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 and 12, bring some perspective to uh, what, what uh, Steve is going to be preaching on next Sunday. Now, if you've been following along and you've been here each week and you've been looking at the story of, of David as we, as we have been over these last few weeks, um, we've, we've moved pretty rapidly from, from last week. Um, as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 6 today, Saul, King Saul actually committed suicide. David is now the king. His best friend, Jonathan, was killed. And today, as we now look into 2 Samuel, it's a, it's a wonderful story that we've got in front of us. So 2 Samuel chapter 6, 1 through to 15 is what we're going to be predominantly looking at. Now, one of the first jobs that David is now the the king of Israel, one of the first jobs that he wanted to undertake was to retrieve the Ark of the Covenant. Now, what is the Ark of the Covenant? What is the Ark of... It it reminds me a bit of a movie that came out quite a few years ago, and one of my favourite movies, starring Harrison Ford when he was a lot younger, um, and it kicked off the whole Indiana Jones Um, franchise and it's called Raiders of the Lost Ark it's just a great adventure movie if you're looking for an action movie it's got nothing about God in it but it's just an action movie Raiders of the Lost Ark and here's Harrison Ford Indiana Jones looking for the Ark of the Covenant and that's part of the the whole movie is he's on this on on this adventure to find the Ark of the Covenant And some people say, well, we're really still looking for it today. Where would the Ark of the Covenant be? Now, I've got a picture. There it is up there. I guess not fully understanding, but probably what it would would look like. And the Bible details what the Ark looks like. And so that's where that image has come from. It's basically, an Ark means a chest. Basically a chest about a metre long, half a metre wide and half a metre high, as as you can see there. On top of the Ark of the Covenant is what's called this mercy seat. And over the top of this mercy seat are these angels. Now, what's so special? What's so special about the Ark of the Covenant? It's what is inside the Ark of the Covenant that's so 
important inside was the stone tablets that Moses got when he met with God up on the Mount Sinai you know the the, the law these stone cabinets are these stone tablets are located within the Ark of the Covenant there's also Aaron's rod which was highly significant and samples of manna you know the the manna the food that dropped down from heaven that the Israelites ate while they were in the wilderness so these three items are reminders of the the significance of the presence of God guiding the Israelites through the wilderness so it was built while they were still in the wilderness the ark of the covenant and it was housed in what you could best say was was a tent they call it the tabernacle which is kind of like a temporary temple if you're in the wilderness and you're wandering in the wilderness you can't have a permanent temple so they have this tent called the tabernacle and in this tabernacle, this tent, behind a large curtain was located the, uh, this Ark of the Covenant. It was called the Holy of Holies. No one could go behind that curtain unless, in, first of all, uh, there was a table in front of the curtain where a sacrifice was made. Generally, once a year, a sacrifice was made of an animal to enable um, that, that priest to be able to enter the Holy of Holies. Now, the whole significance of the Ark of the Covenant is that it, it shone and, and shone God's Shekinah glory. This was where the presence of God rested on the Ark of the Covenant. So you could imagine for the Israelites, this was highly significant, isn't it? This represents the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I mentioned uh, in my introduction that one of David's first jobs was to retrieve the Ark of the Covenant. So, David is now king. Where was the Ark of the Covenant? Where was it? In those days, now if you remember that Israel was continually fighting other enemies and around that time it was the Philistines. Remember, you know, Goliath, the Philistine, they were in these ongoing battles. And in one particular battle, the, 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 the Philistines... Uh, took the Ark of the Covenant as spoils of war. Now, you, you know what I mean by spoils of war. It's not just a matter of, you know, a, a souvenir. This is, they take something that's highly significant from the other army and take it as their own, as the spoils of war. It'd be a bit like, um, imagine Lismore were at war with Ballina and we went down and we fought Ballina and we wanted to find the spoils of what we'd grab the big prawn, wouldn't we? We'd grab the big prawn, we'd bring it up the Bruxner Highway, and we'd sit it in the middle of Oaks Oval there and go, This is the spoils of war, Lismore reigns. There'd be probably some people in Ballin that go, Well, you can have the big prawn, we're not interested in it. Anyway, but that's, that's kind of what it is, is kind of like. So you can imagine David, he becomes king. And he has a tough job as king because there's, they're getting invaded from everywhere. There's, there's got lots of enemies and life is really, really tough. And he wanted God's presence, which kind of indicates the character of David. David recognises that he needs God back in the rightful centre of, of the kingdom. So he's saying, I need the Ark of the Covenant back. It's a bit be like us we we need spiritual help too we, we need God at the center of our lives don't we 
And it's, it's more than just you know, holding a Bible or, or going to church or having the right doctrine or anything like that. It's, it's, we need God's presence in our life. We, we need God at the, at the centre of all that we do. True? Now, as we get to this story about David retrieving the ark, I think it reminds us of four things about God's character. Now, they are listed in your study guide, so you've got them there in your study guide, you can follow along. These four aspects of God's character are this, and the first one I'm going to mention is the power of God. The power of God is an aspect of God's character. Now, instead of going straight into 2 Samuel chapter 6, I'm going to go way back to 1 Samuel 5, because the ark is, is, was in the possession of the Philistines. The Philistines had taken the Ark of the Covenant as the spoils of war. And if you remember, right back in our very first sermon about the story of Hannah, and Hannah would go up to the temple, remember that? And there was the priest called Eli. And Eli was the priest at this particular temple. And uh, Eli had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, these two sons, and let me tell you, they weren't good people. They would embezzle money, they would abuse women, they would do all sorts of really terrible things. It was a bad time in the, in the life of Israel. And Hophni and Phinehas had a, this thought. They thought, what about if we go out into battle with the Philistines, what about if we take the Ark of the Covenant with us? We take it with us as kind of like a, a good luck charm. You know what I mean? Like like you wear a cross around your neck or something like that as ward off all the evil things. You know, so let's take the Ark of the Covenant into battle, which was the Ark of the Covenant was never designed as a good luck charm in the time of battle. They're probably thinking things like, you know, we you know when Joshua walked around the walls of Jericho and all that sort of thing, God, as a specific time, did specific things. And they're just assuming that the Ark of the Covenant would be a good thing to take into battle. So off they go into battle with the Ark of the Covenant. Guess what happens? The Philistines win that battle, take the Ark of the Covenant of the spoils of war and take it back to their place. And this is where we pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through to 4. Okay, what do the Philistines do with the Ark? After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. Now here's a stone idol that the Philistines worshipped. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. A stone idol. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen his his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and they were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. Oh dear, says the Philistines. What's happened here? Um, you could imagine, what would you think if you were the Philistines? Is this Ark of the Covenant a good thing? Is it a good spoil of the war? Now, I, I failed to mention that also that happened during this time. There was a whole lot of deadly plagues as well. That doesn't go very well either. So the Philistines get very scared of this Ark of the Covenant. It had become a curse to them. 
So what do you do if you've got something that is cursing you? And here's almost the comical thing. What do you do with the Ark of the Covenant? They stick it on a cart, lead it with an oxen. They basically give the oxen a kick, point it towards Israel and go, off you go back to Israel. There goes, think about this, the most precious thing in the sight of Israel and it's been carted by an unmanned oxen in the direction of Israel back there on its own so this oxen on the cart wanders out from from Ashdod towards Israel and ends up in a remote place for the next 20 years the ark of the covenant in the middle of nowhere for 20 years the presence of God dumped in a remote place during King Saul's reign now think about this this was all happening during the reign of King Saul now remember we've talked about King Saul you know good king bad king or whatever but he didn't seem to place a lot of trust in God did he it wasn't even on Saul's radar and this Ark of the Covenant remained in this remote place now what is God saying to us in this place God is a powerful God you don't mess with God do you as the Philistines or the the Israelites did, treated him as a token, and yet God is a powerful God. There's idols falling, there's plagues, but God is not limited. Even when we don't feel God's power, he's, he's still powerful. He's still a very powerful God. Now that leads me to the next point that happens in this story and this is where we pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now I'm not going to put it up on the screen so hopefully you've got your Bibles with you. 2 Samuel chapter 6 and we call this the holiness of God. The holiness of God. Now let's have a look at what happens. 2 Samuel chapter 6 starting at verse 1. David wants to bring the ark back. So David again brought together all of the able young men of Israel, 30,000. If you want to know how many people it takes to bring back the ark of the covenant, about 30,000. About the population of Lismore. He and all of his men went to uh, Balaam in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadad, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadad, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets and harps and lyres and timbrels and sistrums and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Azar because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Azar, and to this day that place is called Perez Azar. Now, first read of this passage, it can really bother you, can't it? What's going on here? What did this one person, Azar, do that was so irreverent? Well, we need to have, probably have a little bit of a backstory and an understanding of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, in Exodus and Numbers, amongst others, and you've got those passages listed in your study guide, there was some very specific instructions on how to handle 
the Ark of the Covenant, because this represented the holy presence of God. Now, in Exodus and Numbers and a number of passages, it said it can only be carried by Levites or the priests. So therefore, it, it's got to be carried. What did they do? They threw it on a cart, right? It's not carried. They put it on a cart. It cannot be touched. There's a whole lot of other rules and regulations regarding this it seems like god is really fickle like you know don't touch me and watch how you carry me etc but i think the reminder of this passage is this the reminder is that there is a huge chasm between a holy god and sinful people god is holy and we're not without him in those days, if you worshipped an idol, and for many of the other um, people, uh, not the Israelites, they would have their own idols and they would get close and they would touch it or rub it or whatever. But the ark was totally different. Only once a year could a priest enter the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was located, and only after the sacrifice of an unblemished lamb. Why was this the case? Because the God of Israel was different different to any of the other gods or idols that were worshipped and we can see here in these first eight verses that King David breaks virtually every rule regarding this he sticks it on a cart it's not covered there's no Levites there's many people even just to put it on the cart people would have been touching it so in, in some regards it was touched all over now, I think this is not about a technical breaking of the rule. It's not like God's standing there with a checklist and going, nah, 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 enough's enough. It's got more to do with the attitude of David and the Israelites. They had scant regard for the holiness of God. The fact that only Azar died probably says more about God's mercy than about his judgment. Israel in this case here and previous to that particularly under King Saul had lost a sense of God's holiness they'd lost a sense of God's seriousness of sin what does that say to us not just us as individuals but as a society Have we we lost a sense of the holiness of God and too often as churches, I think we, we, we go, oh, God's grace, it's so good and it lets us do whatever we want to do and, and we can celebrate all the freedom that we have and we can do whatever we like, but we very rarely consider the seriousness of the holiness of God. And I think particularly for us as a society, you would agree, there is no regard for the holiness of God. We're living in a, like almost a, a, a lawless state to do whatever we want to do and whether it's considerations for you know our, our gender our sexuality our identity the way we treat each other or whatever there's no regard for we've forgotten i think to a large extent whether it's within the church or certainly outside of the church about the the holiness of god 
Now, the next point I'd like to bring is, uh, we've talked about the power of God and the holiness of God. The next one is the mercy of God. And, and this is where we go to the next part of our passage. So, others died, and here's the ark, and it's been, it's been left where it is because there's absolute chaos. And we pick up the story now, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse, starting from verse 9. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the, of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Hmm. Interesting. Think about this where the ark of the Lord was a curse to the Philistines, was a touchy subject for the Israelites, but in this random person, Obed-Edo and his, and his family, it became a blessing. Verse 12, now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Think about that. A lot has changed from the first part of this chapter to the second part. It's like, finally, David gets it. He gets that he's, he's working with a holy God. God is powerful. God is holy. But... Here it is, God is also full of mercy and God makes a way for his people to experience him. Not so much in attitude, in action, but in attitude. And you can see a complete change of attitude. Can you see that? Complete change of attitude in the second part of this, of this um, story. Can you imagine? They're carrying him carrying it not touching it carrying it not throwing it on a cart the levites are involved and can you imagine they don't say how long it took how far it is can you imagine one two three four five six stop we're going to make a sacrifice of a bull fatted calf done that okay off we go again one two three four five six stop sacrifice the bull i mean can you see King David's gone from one extreme of total disregard. It almost seems like he's gone right over the top. There is absolutely no way that we are going to disregard or show any sort of um, just mockery of God in all of this. And you can see the change in reverence. And I think to a certain extent, it's got less to do with the actual action. It's got more to do with a change of attitude. Can you see that? God made a way. That's his mercy. The next point. So I've talked about the power of God, the holiness of God, the mercy of God, and we see the joy of God. And we pick this up in just a couple of verses when they finally, they finally get the Ark of the Covenant back home. It probably would have taken months the way they were going. Verse 14. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might while he and all of Israel were bringing up the house of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. There was, there was great rejoicing. Can you see the joy that followed? Now, 
aren't you glad today in 2023 we don't need to go through all of that to experience the joy of the Lord aren't you glad of that um, probably to bring it into perspective and I was thinking about this to really bring it into perspective of the absolute blessing that we are living in as new covenant people I was thinking maybe next Sunday if we get, come for communion and before we do communion we bring in a, a lamb a live lamb and we, there'll be a bit of a risk assessment involved in all of this, handling a live lamb. And we actually bring it up onto the communion table, this live lamb. And I'll bring out a knife. No, I won't. And just before, you know, just a bit like Abraham and Isaac, just before I go, nah, aren't we glad that we're not living? Now, I've thought about this and elders, being elders present, I, I think it's probably a good idea that we don't. But imagine the effect of going, and then when we go to have communion, we go, yeah, well, now we, we do get it. The perfect lamb. That we don't have to go through what was required to go through before Jesus came. And so thinking about this with regard to the joy of the Lord, imagine the joy that was in David when the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, was finally in his kingdom, in his place. It was finally home, that he could be so full of joy and, and dancing, and he was experiencing the limited, the limited presence of God, really, in this one place. Whereas for us, through God's Spirit, indwelling within each one of us, the full presence of God by his Spirit... How much dancing and joy should we have, hey? How much more for us experiencing the perfect sacrifice? Now, I just want to give you a reminder. I just want to give you a reminder because too often people think that the, there's an Old Testament God and there's a, there's a New Testament God and the Old Testament God was all about judgment and, and, and power and smiting and all that sort of thing. And the New Testament God is the loving and, and uh, soft and God. I want to remind you that the power, the holiness, the mercy and the joy in the Lord has not changed. The God that we see in the Old Testament is still the God we see in the New Testament. And as a matter of fact, there's probably just as many acts of mercy in the Old Testament, like we saw there. Only one person died instead of the 30,000. So God still acted many times in acts of mercy. But his character has not changed. David only had a box, the Ark of the Covenant. We've got a cross. And the cross trumps the box any time. Not because of what it's made of or how it's constructed or whatever, but it's who died on the cross. The perfect lamb. The ultimate sacrifice. Now, what I want to do is I want to move through now to the New Testament. And I think there's a great passage in the New Testament that kind of wraps this all up. And it's Hebrews 9. 
Now, Hebrews 9, the writer of Hebrews 9 is writing this book to Hebrew people, to, to, to Jews, to explain what has transpired through because of Jesus. I'm going to read the, the first 10 verses, and it kind of sets all of this up. Hebrews 9, starting at verse 1. The first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room was the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, the angels, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priest entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. That's the Old Testament. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. There it is, the old testament summed up in a few verses that's what it was like to live as one of god's people during that time a significant burden it details the process i find it fascinating we get to verse 11 how does verse 11 start Uh, first first word hey but it's probably one of the most significant buts in the whole of the scripture because there we have all the rules and regulations for how the Jews were to live living up into that time but and let's let's contrast that to this but starting from verse 11 when Christ came as the high priest of good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption." The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from the acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? The old has gone the new has come verse 15 for this reason christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promise eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the the first covenant hebrews 9 does that give 
perspective? Does that give a link, but also a contrast to life lived under the old covenant to that under the new covenant? Now, let me ask, I'd probably survey you. Who would prefer to live under the old covenant? Mm, no one. Who would prefer to live under the new covenant? Oh, there you go. How blessed are we to be living under the new covenant? That the, the blood of Christ... The, the perfect lamb has made a way, not just so that God's presence is limited to this, this box or this space, this limited space, to, to every in, the indwelling of every follower of Jesus. We, we are truly blessed. We are truly blessed. And I think sometimes we need a time like this to actually look at that and they go, wow, you know, too often I take that for granted. And some people will say, well then, why do we have the Old Testament? Why not just start with the New Testament, the, the Old Testament, because we're New Testament people. And I think for me, one of the best ways to explain it is, imagine if you flicked on the TV and you got the final 10 minutes of a movie. You look at that movie and you go, oh, great. The good guys beat the bad guys. That's all I need to know. I just need to know that the good guys beat the bad guys, isn't it? Well, you go, no, that, that really doesn't give us the full picture, does it? It doesn't know to what extent the good guys needed to work in order to secure freedom for the people through defeating the bad guys. You, you know what I'm saying? So really, if you want to get the full picture, you need to watch the whole movie, don't you? You need to see the tension, you need to see the battles, you need to see the resources that have gone into and the work preparing for evil to be defeated. Does that make sense? It's probably a poor example, but anyway, that's the best I've got. So are we New Testament people? Yes, we are. What is the relevance of the Old Testament? The relevance of the Old Testament is that God has not changed. He's still a powerful, holy, merciful God who brings us joy through serving him and being part of him. It gives us a picture of the lengths that God has gone to in order to bring us to this place where we can know the freedom to serve and to live and to minister and, and love and the, the hope and the future that we have in him because of what Jesus has done. The perfect lamb, the perfect sacrifice which ushered in the Holy Spirit, the presence of God in the lives of every single follower of Jesus. If you know any better news than that, you better tell me because I don't know any better news than that. Does that make sense? I'm going I'm to close in prayer. But I'm also, as I, I said at the very start, can I get you as a little bit of homework following on from 2 Samuel 6, 2 Samuel 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 and 12 and Pastor Steve next week will pick that up and you'll be blessed as we continue to look at this story. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what you speak to us, not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. We thank you how we can look back and see your story, your story of redemption, your story of love, your story of mercy, your story of forgiveness. And we just want to say, Heavenly Father, 
we just want to tell you thank you that we are so blessed we're so blessed because of jesus that through your son jesus the perfect sacrifice his death on the cross through his blood we have forgiveness we can know grace and we know a relationship with you for eternity we thank you for that i want to pray heavenly father that you will not allow us to take that for granted where we easily get back into whinging and complaining that life's tough and it's tough being a christian and whatever but help us to keep in perspective this wonderful covenant that we have that we were bought with a price and we belong to god through jesus because of his act of of love and mercy we thank you heavenly father that you are still powerful you are still holy and yet you're still merciful and you still give us joy as we seek to serve you continue to lead us and guide us we pray and we pray this in jesus name amen amen